how about we don't try and make food perfect because it's not perfect, just like life's not perfect. If you're recycling, that's awesome. But you also need to look at all these other pieces and you don't have to be doing them perfectly. The first step is reduce, then reuse, then recycle. They are in order. Get inspired by people fighting to make this world better for everyone. This is Unwasted with Imperfect. Hello and welcome back to the Unwasted Podcast. I'm your host, Riley Brock, and it's my honor every week to talk with experts in food, health, sustainability, and generally making the world a better, tastier place. How do you sow the seeds of change in your life? For today's guest, this challenge is a deeply personal one that has evolved into a life's quest of healing, growth, and transformation through farming. She's a farmer, horticulturalist, and floral designer based out of New York, and it's an honor to have her with us here today. Amber Tam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to get into this conversation here. I'd love to start, I guess, just with your background in farming. You know, how did you first get into growing food? Um, I think if we were to go into my inner child dialogue, um, recently my brother, my oldest brother just uh transcribed some home videos into like digital videos and I've been watching those and just observing my inner child um but I was always with plants as a child my mom had a lot of house plants as a child um and always encouraged me to talk to plants so I had a mother super rooted in the indigenous wisdom of Cherokee people my people to be grounded with the earth be with the earth and be present with the earth as as a way of being present with the ancestors at all times. Um, when I was in third grade, I had a safety transfer from my school in the hood into a school into Manhattan. And the, the name of that school was the Hippie School. And I give the Hippie School so much credit on my evolution as a Black woman from the hood because I was getting into a lot of trouble I'm going to school in the hood. And the Hippie School really grounded me in diversity. Um, and expanded my mind in so many ways. The first way being, I learned all the Beatles songs by way of being at that school. But (laughs) (laughs) I ended up, it was like the first day of class and everyone was sharing their summer. And my summer was always very basic. Like I went to a sports camp and like just sat there all day and absolutely hated it. But there was a lot of other people there that were sharing about this experience they had on farms. And there was one girl in particular who was sharing about her family's farm, how she had went there. If I'm not mistaken, it was in Mexico. And she was talking about spinach and I'll never forget it because I had no idea what spinach was. And she, she passed around this photo of her holding two handfuls of spinach. Mm -hmm. And so in my head, there was, it was like quantum questions. I'm also a Gemini. So I always have quantum questions. So I didn't, I didn't understand what a farm really was. I didn't understand how her family owned one. I didn't understand spinach and like what that was and how, what you do with it. I, I didn't understand anything. So I immediately remember wanting to like douse her in questions, but I was also the new girl in this school and one of the only black girls in the school. So I, I just had to sit there and think about it. But that was very much so the moment that I in my heart knew that that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't express it. Hmm. And then from there, um, by the time I got to high school, I had rooted myself in saying that I would go to college, get a degree just so I can go to Peace Corps. And Peace Corps was going to be my way of getting my hands into the soil since I had already known that farming was looked down upon. Um, So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Peace Corps. I'm going to be a humanitarian. Um, but I really just wanted to farm. And um, six months into my first year, freshman year at school, I got a phone call that my dad had murdered my mom. And, you know, it, it just felt like everything that I had ever worked for, everything that everyone had ever, ever told me, like, this is what you are to do to be successful, just blew up in my face. And I took advantage of the moment in terms of not having parents, not having grandparents not having anyone tell me what to do, but I also was homeless. I needed a place to live. I needed income and I needed uh, food. I was absolutely hungry and farming kind of met all those needs at one time, 
but it also absolutely did usher in a lot of new trauma aside from my parental trauma. But I had no intention of really falling in love with it. I thought it would be something that I would try out and feel good about and then move past. But it ended up being the one thing that healed me in terms of my relationship with my mom and understanding that through working with the earth, I'm actually speaking to my mom. So through burying my mom into the earth, if I am to believe that trees speak to each other through their roots, then I have to understand that I speak to my mom through my fingers. Whoa, that's really powerful. You know, so at this juncture in your life where it seems like you're suddenly, you had uh, a ton of uh, freedom and new choices and new things to work through thrust on you all at once and and that huge emotional trauma to unpack. You know, where did, where did you go to farm at that time? Like you, you said, you know, looking for housing, looking for food, looking for grounding. You found that in farming. Where did, where did that take you in the world? Yeah. So I started off in Newburgh, New York, which is maybe uh, two hours away from New York city. And it was the absolute worst farm I've ever worked at in my life. Um, like just to list a couple of things, like, you know, I was called the help. Um, you know, I, the, the head farmer and his brother owned a strip club and they seemed to be uh, hiring young women and paying them poorly um, to try and shave them to dance at their strip club. Um, you know, a lot of my feelings were invalidated based on the experience I was having through my personal trauma of just losing my mom, but then also understanding the ancestral trauma within my DNA of like black folks doing this work for free. Like it was the absolute worst thing. But um, from there, I ended up getting my farmer certification in Hawaii, which was wicked and wild to just go from New York City to Hawaii, having never been to the middle of America or the West Coast. Yeah. And, and then from there, I went to uh, like Oakland, San Fran, stayed there for a while. I then went to, I stopped by in Texas, Wisconsin, Chicago. Uh, then I went to Florida. Then I went back to Northern California. And then I came back to New York City. So it was quite a long two years of me really trying to find either a space where I can plan my next move or the farm home where I can actually be a part of the team. And it didn't work out, which is beautiful because I ended up back in New York city with a ton mm. of experience. And now I'm able to, you know, have access to these farm jobs here, which where I can really provide to the community I come from. Yeah. That's really fascinating. It sounds like farming quite literally took you around the country. Like farming took you on a physical journey while it was taking you on, as I understand it, an emotional journey of healing as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the blessing of that is I think a lot of Black American farmers don't have ex experience with migrant farmers. So I was basically on the same routes as any other immigrant migrant farmer. And I think that's part of being like, you know, the American outcast is you're, you're casted with immigrants. Um, but I walked into knowing that things were going very wrong. Meanwhile, immigrants, from what I saw, have a certain stoicness and stealth and resilience to just get through the moment and not yeah. acknowledge the harshness. So I was pretty much like a troublemaker. You know, I would get to a farm and be like, why are you paying all these immigrant people low wages? Hmm. But I'm American, so I would do that. So once they figured out, you know, I didn't have a Caribbean accent hmm. and I'm not from the Caribbean at all, they, they felt shaken up and they needed to find a way to get me off the farm. Oh, wow. So you're, you're a little bit of a, an instigator, like shaking things I'm up when you were there. I'm a troublemaker, a calm one, a gentle one, but a troublemaker nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but asking really good questions. I mean, the point you bring up about what it's actually like for folks on the ground who are growing and picking the food most of us eat uh, at grocery stores, that's really huge. I mean, wh what did uh, working with some of these farm workers teach you about really the nature of this labor and, and what these folks go through? I think one of the biggest things that I saw is, well, one, I noticed my lack of speaking Spanish, which I really need mm. to work on, because um, that was one of the biggest miscommunications that was happening for me in terms of like a really good example is a lot of the women who work on these bigger conventional farms only work in the processing room. So, you know, if you're looking at an apple orchard or a peach orchard, 
the women are not really in the fields. They're in the processing room packing the peaches or the apples or waxing them, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so when I first got to some of these farms, I was always oriented to be in the field with the dirt, with the trees, doing that work. And I think a lot of the women were trying to warn me not to do that, but I didn't speak Spanish. So I kind of went and did my own thing. But in the end, it was to my detriment because in the fields, when you're so far away from the bathrooms and you're so far away from um, where more women are, where the head farmers are, there's a bigger threat to sexual assault, catcalling and rape. Mm. So wow. that was one of the realities that I, first of all, I'd, I'd never seen any black farmer talk about. I thought I've never seen any woman farmer address. And I think that's because mainly on these bigger conventional farms, that's where it's happening. And immigrants don't have time to adjust things. They just have to be there, make money and go back home. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point. You, you brought up earlier this stoicism to it. And it strikes me that part of that is quite what, what you're saying is if you're not wanting to risk getting deported, you're not going to speak out. You're not really going to complain. You're just, yeah, like you said, keep your head down, do the work. Um, yes. Yeah, that's really powerful. Which I mean, is I, different, super different as an American woman. Yeah. Right. Like t- as totally. somebody who has the privilege to say, well, you cannot get rid of me. And either you're going to pay these people properly at least once while I'm here. Or I'm reporting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, so most Americans have not been on a farm and kind of seen how the sausage is made or how the leek is grown, rather. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear what are what are some other things, you know, we talked about the labor bit a little bit, but I'm curious, what are some other things you wish that more people knew about the reality of farming? Um, I think one one of the biggest things I wish people understood is vegetables don't make a lot of money. Mm, so when we yes. talk about veganism, like as much as I want to support that and be down with that, uh, meat is where it's at. Meat is probably, meat and dairy and poultry products can bring in 10 times more money than vegetables ever could. Yeah, um, And that's mainly because I think people feel more oriented to say, oh, well, the local farmer doesn't have shallots and yeah. it's August, but I could go to the grocery store and get that. Right. Meanwhile, people who eat meat and really want good meat, they're always oriented to have a meat CSA or they're oriented to um, go to the farmer's market to get good meat. So that's, that's number one is like, I think I absolutely agree that red meat is part, one of the biggest reasons for climate change if we're talking about factory farming, but I cannot blame a factory farmer for taking that on when that is going to subsidize them getting healthcare, that's going to subsidize them to pay their land taxes, et cetera. Um, So that's, that's something for, you know, people who are rooted in having alkaline diets and vegan diets to really think about, like, how do we actually support a veggie farmer where, you know, you're going there and buying two potatoes and that's really only equating to maybe 75 cents. Yeah. So there's that factor. I think the other factor is right now in particular, there's a lot of things going on pertaining to amplifying black voices and I think this has by far been one of the most challenging seasons I've ever experienced to be just farming and like the physical labor of that, but also the heightened sense of like, oh, let's talk anti-racism. Um, and just understanding the exhaustion of that. I think yeah. naturally the black farmer is working the fields and is the anti-racism. You know, it's naturally just a narrative that we carry. But for everyone to now be interested in it and it be a hot topic, it's just a super different level of exhaustion. Um, I'm grateful for it because it's a breakthrough. I think from this point forward, we in the agricultural realm, people can't say that they don't know. But I think it's important for one to think about, even if you are paying the Black farmer to speak, it's a large level of exhaustion. Yeah. I'd be curious. I mean, yeah, I want to get into the to the race and farming thing because I think that's a huge and often sadly overlooked issue. I'm curious to, to the issue you just brought up. Is it that you you feel like you're being put on the spot a lot? Like, hey, can you speak for black farmers? Is that it, or how, how would you you mention this level of exhaustion, which I really uh, 
I'm just curious to unpack that and and help folks understand like why it's exhausting to continually be asked to speak to anti-racism and farming. I think because it's not a new topic to black farmers. It's a new yeah. topic to anybody who's white watching black farmers. Yeah. So if I'm to speak about any time before this time, I've always been talking about anti-racism within the food system. I didn't yeah. call it that. Yeah. I was just speaking from my personal experience saying the fact that I'm working on this farm and I'm bending over and this man is telling me that I can make more money as a stripper at his strip club than I would ever would farming is going to lead me to think about some of the slave narratives that I've read where mm. the slave master is looking at the young girl saying, if you are my mistress, you'll be fed better food than you ever would picking cotton, right? So that's like a great example of like, oh, that's my personal experience. But now it's being spun as like, oh, you're doing anti-racism work in the mm. food system. But when I think about all the times that I've been educating through my five years and not being compensated for it because I'm just a black woman having my own personal experience, that's where the exhaustion plays out. Now everybody has capacity and money for people to people who are black in the food system to express what they've always been expressing. Um, without really understanding that for years we've been doing this, we've been here. Yeah. Um, and we've been ready to share this and we've been shut down. We've been gaslighted. We've been bypassed yeah. all the things. Yeah. So there, there's a happiness of like, wow, we're finally being heard, seen, felt. But then there's also a little bit of, I think, offense because a lot of the people that are now praising us were putting us down in the past. Mm. Okay. I mean, if I can put it bluntly, it sounds to me like what is to me a white man, uh, a new trend I see on my Instagram feed is to you, a black female farmer, your lived reality. So it's it's neither novel nor exciting nor fun, really, because this is like, yes, it's great. More people are paying attention to it. But what you're saying is that for you, this is this is just your life. So it's not this like exciting new trend. It's just what's what you've dealt with. Yes. And I also think it's a level of what's really going to change now mm. that this information is known, seen, felt, heard. Yeah. Right. Because there, there's a reality of anti-racism where now we're equipped with the skills to address it. But Black people still have to live with the historical like setbacks. It's like, yeah. okay, if we can address the intersectional environmentalism and how USDA has set Black farmers back. But now that we've addressed it, what, how are we actually going to get land to more black farmers? Yeah. Right. So black farmers are still left with the historical setbacks, even though everyone can address it. Yeah. That, okay. That's a really great point. And that really brings me to my next question, which is, you know, I saw a stat and I think it was the, the Guardian that really stuck with me, which is that in 1920, there were over a million black farmers. While today there's less than 45,000, which is truly staggering uh, for folks who haven't seen that. That really knocked me on my butt. And I think it's I've kept mm -hmm. me thinking since then. For folks that don't know about the history of black farming in the U.S., can you share just a bit about like, what do you think are some of the most important uh, moments or trends that have happened in farming when it, as it pertains to race? Yeah, I think really and truly my the biggest thing that I learned and last year I had a, a big burnout breakdown because after I had farmed in New York City for the first time, um, I still I was still feeling the repercussions of not being able to voice what I was feeling as a black woman and still not being able to service black community, which is a big problem I have with farming in New York City, which gets me super frustrated because that's yeah. my whole goal. But when I was finally trying to figure out how to have the words to address it, what I came across was, oh, well, the, the farming system that we have right now is replicated from the slavery times. So the problem, the, the real problem with farming is when I think about if you are to go online and you're like looking to be a farmer, they're going to offer you an apprenticeship, an internship or a farmhand position, right? Or a farm crew position. And what that position entails is they'll say, we can pay you $600 a month and you can live in a tent on our land and have access to fresh produce. Now, if you're someone of my caliber where it's like, well, $600 a month isn't going to get me anywhere. And I'm still paying for a room in New York City because I don't have parents. I don't have grandparents. I don't have family to lean on. This is not helping me. 
Also, I'm trying to get a farm of my own. So how is $600 going to help me meet my needs in terms of paying a phone bill, paying rent, paying for health insurance? Because now I'm farming on a tractor. There's ticks. There's things that I need to tend to. Yeah. But you're offering me $600. Now, sometimes they'll say, we'll offer you 1000 a month, but you have to pay rent for a room. Hmm. Right. So, so then it's even more complicated. It's like, okay, well, I'm farming for you 40 hours a week, only then to pay you half of my paycheck, which is already taxed. So it's a, it's a weird system. And when I'm guiding people into it, I have to really give them the disclaimers. Like it's going to feel like people are taking advantage of you, but it's really because farmers essentially have no money regardless of their color. Wow. So when we're dealing with that, with the face of that, it's like, well, why is that happening? Right? Yeah. So if you're to go all the way back in time when farming as an industry really started in America, there was no wages. You had the head farmer and pretty much the overseers were the only people who were making money. Right. So you had this plantation system where the family was making money, but all of the workers were working for free. And all of these workers were property and treated as such. Yeah. So when we are to talk about now, the, we're still operating off of that system. But the problem is, is now we have to pay wages. So you have the head farmer that's really not making money on top of the farm crew worker who's also not making money. And that is, that's what, when we say decolonize the food system, that's what we're really pointing to is we have to get rid of the plantation system, which is still very much alive. Hmm. And as you probably know, this is very much so alive with migrant workers where you have Driscoll who's paying, you know, their workers maybe $6 a day, but it's like, well, why is that happening? Because they need to have profitability as a company. They need to make sure that the top down approach is still relevant. But where does the top down approach come from? Plantation, plantation times. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people struggle to understand that. But when, when you look at the history of plantations, when you are to look at the history of social security, the first minimum wage was made for black farmers. Hmm. Minimum wage was created once sharecropping was starting to happen. So I think that's one of the biggest things that I can put up there. Aside from that, I would encourage people to look up the Pickford cases to really see how the USDA, how they manipulated black farmers to have them let go of their land. Um, and then from there, you know, reading really powerful books like Farming While Black or researching George Washington Carver um, and how he created some of the most powerful things for agriculture and is never revered as an agricultural pioneer, probably because of the times that he was creating all of these things and the racial tension in this country. Yeah. Wow, that's really powerful. You're blowing my mind over here. Uh, this is just a lot of this stuff that, frankly, you're not taught in school. And I mean, frankly, like, I don't feel like you're taught about the food system in school very much at all. Like I had to learn about it or I chose to learn about it rather in college. Like and I, I had to seek it out. Like it wasn't really a default part of, of curriculums. And then adding this racial layer, that's another thing that's kind of tragically left out. And like I remember, you know, learning about George Washington Carver, but it was very much in passing. You know, it was just like one of many names that are chucked out as like, here's examples of historically notable African-Americans. And, you know, it's like George Washington Carver, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Mm -hmm. Douglass. And they're all amazing individuals, but they're almost thrown out as like this afterthought of like, oh, and these folks, you know? Yeah. Um, They're normally thrown out in February. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like, why just one month of the year when they're just key folks of all American history? That's okay. You're giving me a lot to think about. I think one thing that struck me, I'm curious to hear your take on this is, you know, a lot of us talk about sustainability and farming environmentally, but it strikes me one thing you're bringing up is that the farming model we have right now in this country in a lot of ways is not economically sustainable, especially for people trying to get into it or trying to even advance within it. You know, Mm -hmm. what's what's your take on economic sustainability and just kind of the, the model we have right now in farming? I think that a lot of people are wanting to look right in terms of this racial conversation a lot of people like to involve race in everything. So it's like, now that we're talking about race, let's talk about equity. Let's talk about bias. Let's talk about yeah. inclusion. Let's talk about diversity, which is a lot to talk about at one time. So like blessings to all of us on this planet right now, because yeah. it's a lot to break down. And I do understand why one would do that because they all are intersected, but 
compartmentalization for each one is how we're going to survive. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to economics and talking about equity, I think in general, what farming has the capacity to do, unlike any other industry, is to get rid of the top-down approach, which is something I talk about a lot. It's like, okay, if I'm going to be a farm owner, I'm going to make the same amount of money as my farm crew. It's not, it's not going to vary just because I'm the farm owner. And um, I was talking to a good friend yesterday named Chris Newman, who's one of the leaders and he's a black farmer leader in general. And I look up to him and his farm a lot, but he's actually doing that work right now where everybody who works on his farm is a partner. So there mm. is no top down yeah. approach. Everybody is equalized. Everybody is together. Everybody has a say so. And so I think that is going to be the future of farming, not conventional, not like grain farming, not anybody who's farming with the government, but for those of us who have the capacity to really understand capitalism and think, how, how do I want to get out of this? That's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like everybody has a stake in the business rather yeah. than I'm the business owner and you all work under me. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I mean, I think, it, I think it's about maybe not thinking about things as a business. I always talk about pimping the system in that way. It's like, okay, yeah, you can be a business. But essentially what a lot of agricultural voices are talking about right now is something that isn't a business. And that's why it's complicated. Yeah. We're talking about collaborating just to feed people. We're not thinking about, oh, how do we have profitability so that we can give it to people and they pay us. We're more so like, how do we bring in people? How do we live on this land together and have all of this quote unquote man power, hmm. but all of this power to then just feed people and know that because we're all here doing this work, it'll come in. So that yeah. can look like people coming together on one piece of land. And then these bigger organizations, corporations deciding, we're going to make sure that we give all of the tools that they need for free we get a tax deductible write-off and they get everything they need. So they're able to do the work that they need to do. And so I think that's another way in which economic sustainability can look like where it's a win-win situation for both people. The last way is there's a lot of landowners out here who are not using a large portion of their land. And I think there's room for contracts and MOUs to be written between the landowner and the farmer to say, we're coming to an oral verbal agreement that this is how the land is going to be used um, without having to like the government involved without having to get like a USDA loan and like go into debt. That is a very fast way to say, I need this land to be used because it's just a lawn. You want to grow food on it or you want to have livestock on it. Take this land and use it, do whatever you need to do. Yeah. You know, you, you brought up this idea of debt and equity, and I guess this is an aspect of farming I, I think is often kind of overlooked. You know, you've, you've, I saw a quote on your Instagram that said you shouldn't have to go into debt to grow food. Can you kind of unpack that for people? Like, why is, why is that such a key issue here? Well, I think because land access is very harsh. When, if you were to talk to any farmer, especially white, older farmers who have inherited land, they might... They, their family might have owned the land, but they probably do have to pay some level of land tax. Um, and that's kind of what knocks them out every time because on top of paying that land tax, they do have to pay for things for their house. Maybe there's a mortgage, maybe there's a light bill, maybe there's something going on, or they have to pay for water, which is paying for water on a farm is very, very complicated. Um, yep. And you don't get a lot of deductions just because you're a farm. So I think regardless of color... Farming is super complicated and it's still a system in which sense is being used in terms of like an apple costs 50 cents. It's very rare that you hear anybody using cents anymore. Everybody else is in dollars while farmers are still saying, oh, you want to buy one piece of celery? It's X amount of cents. So we're still pinching pennies so that we can then pay for what needs to be paid for. But the USDA is also making it seem, they're making it seem like they're on the farmer's side right now by offering, you know, guaranteed loans. And so my stance is, is if you are to look at the history of the USDA with Black farmers, they are not to be trusted. There's a lot of narratives on the internet right now that talk, that will showcase to you how throughout history, the government 
how they're delegating things is where the culture of white people are at. So if you're yeah. to look at the history of USDA, it, it was very racist because that's where the culture of white people are at. So my stance is for through protection of black farmers and young farmers, period, we are to really take note of the history of the USDA. And it's amazing to me that all they have to offer right now is they're saying, if you are a minority farmer, whether that's LGBTQ, woman, or of color, we're offering you a guaranteed loan with low interest. That is not enough to make up for what they did in the past, which is the whole reason why Black folks don't have land. Yeah. So for me, it's I understand how that could help someone if they already own land and they're just trying to keep it. Yeah. Sure. But for, for someone like me who's walking into it, it's, it's not ideal. It's, it's just not an ideal situation to say, let me get this huge loan. And yes, it's low interest, but I'm always technically the USDA will own my land. Hmm. I don't find a way to pay them back when they say I need to pay them back, yeah. which means that at any point in time, they can come confiscate it because of some little tiny line I didn't read in their terms and agreements. Yeah. So what does it look like to live outside of a system in which you're relying on the government to fill in space? Because essentially that space shouldn't be there. I shouldn't need to think, how am I going to get all this money to grow food for people? The government should say, here's this land, grow food for people because we are food insecure and everything is being imported. Hmm. But instead, they're spinning it to say, oh, we're doing you a favor by offering you this low interest loan and you have to pay us for the rest of your life, Hmm. which is going to have you void from health insurance, going to have you void from self-care. So to me, it's not to be trusted, but a, a lot of farmers feel differently. I get a lot of criticism from white farmers in the middle of America that, you know, tell me they would do anything to have a guaranteed low interest loan from the USDA. But I'm, I'm also not interested in just running a business. Yeah. I think if that was my focus, profitability, I would do it. Cause then I would be trying to rape the land of all of its resources to pay myself first, then pay everybody else wages that they should be making way more and paying the USDA back. Yeah. It it strikes me that farming is such a quandary and that it's the intersection of so many different things in this country. It's the intersection of our history. It's the intersection of our geology, our economy, our social issues, our labor disputes. Like all of these things are kind of this like uh, Mm -hmm. complicated lasagna of of farming. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's hard to have simple conclusions. I think it's something to listen to you talk. It's like, I can kind of see this issue from a lot of sides and none of them are simple. You know, whether or not someone agrees or disagrees with you, the okay, what's next sentence is very complicated. And then that's, uh, that's just just worth dwelling on that and, and, and making peace with that. Cause like growing food has never been simple. And so it's, uh, yeah, I think it's just worth, uh, marinating in that fact. And, and the, the solution is going to have to be complicated and nuanced and, and it's it's not just going to, you can't snap your fingers and be like, all right, cool. We fixed agriculture. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's the beauty of it is each farmer is going to have a different way of tackling it. Yeah. And yeah. that, that's just what it's going to be forever, mainly because we don't know what farming actually is. Mm. It's still an art form that there's no pathway on how to do it right, because essentially it's wrong. No one should be putting a seed in the ground to pull it out weeks later. You know, that's not the point of a plant. A plant is mm. not here to say, let me drop my seed and then I'm going to pull myself out. So essentially farming is this really weird human thing that we've created and now there's no going back. It's like, well, the only way we're going to have food is through farming. Yeah. So it's a, it's definitely a nuance. And the problem with that is, is then you have black farmers who are looking to each other to say, what do we do? How do we do this? And nobody has one answer, one pathway because each person is carving a new pathway, but yeah. I don't know if it can be replicated. So mm. That even happens for young farmers. And then you have this transitioning happening right now from young farmers, you know, from old farmers and old farmers are telling us like, well, we worked in corporate America for 30 years and then we decided to buy a farm. That's what the older farmer will say. So the older farmers, they never had to live through how do I make minimum wage as a farmer? The federal minimum wage for agriculture is $7 an hour an hour 
how do I make minimum wage and farm, do what I love, do what America needs, but then also someday have my own farm. And older farmers can attest to that. They're like, I saved up all of my money while I was slaving away working as a bank teller or an mm. accountant. So even then it's like the the wisdom can't, it can't get through. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, I used to work in restaurant kitchens and it strikes me that the restaurant industry is weirdly analogous to what you're talking about with agriculture in that mm -hmm. if you, if you get into it on the ground level, the idea that you can work your way up and one day own a restaurant is on paper, it's possible, but it mm -hmm. rarely happens because like you said, you're working really long hours, making basically minimum wage. And often these jobs are done by undocumented immigrants from Mexico right. or Central America. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the economics of running a restaurant, you know, buying the, or, you know, rather being able to afford the rent and all of the insurance and the liquor license and all these things, like you have to have so much capital to get into actually owning a restaurant. Yes. The idea of like working your way up is it's a really steep uphill climb and you usually have to have either very wealthy friends, very wealthy family, very right. wealthy connections somehow to, to be able to front you that. And yes. I, you know, I've talked candidly with colleagues in the restaurant industry about, you know, a lot of them would love to have a restaurant, but like making it happen these days is, is harder than ever. And you, you kind of have to make do as you know, doing pop-ups or, or kind of yes. dreaming, dreaming one day because the economics are just frankly not in your favor and, yeah, that's, it's just, it's kind of mind blowing. I think in America, we're, we're taught this idea of, oh, it's a meritocracy. And if you just work your way up, you can climb. And I think that might be true in some industries, but it's just strikes me in food. It's, it's often not the case. And I think that's really interesting because food is so fundamental, you know? Yeah. It's the one thing that everybody needs, but aside from capital, it's like, you need the, the information as to how to get a brick and mortar mm. right? or you need mm -hmm. the information on how to get land ownership. And that's where I'm at now. It's like, oh, now that I've gotten to this point where people want to support me with land ownership, now I have to do all the red lining yeah. work of now understanding the language of land ownership, understanding the language of money yeah. with the IRS. So it's like on top of just like, how do I secure the funding? Then it's like, well, if you have somebody that's an immigrant here who doesn't know English well, how are they ever supposed to read any of these documents and yeah. understand how to get anything started on top of, I mean, I'm fully American and I read these documents and I'm like, I have no idea what this is saying. So yeah. there's also the confusion that is purposely there to say, Oh, this is what you want. Now you have to work for it. You have to really work for it in terms of hiring a lawyer, hiring an accountant, hiring a bookkeeper, which then it's like, well, I need more money, which means you need to go back to your investors. It's like this circle mm. of yeah. It's kind of I don't even know what to call it. I was going to say it's it's kind of dense by design. It sounds like a lot of these things are deliberately opaque and deliberately kind of hermetically sealed to outsiders. I mean, I, I don't know how intentional that is, but the result is that if you're not already in it in terms of the connections, the knowledge, the money, the capital, it's very unlikely you'll be able to break through and kind of right. climb within it. You know, there's, yes. it seems like it's almost like a I don't know if caste system is too harsh of a word, but there are like these weird tiers that there's not necessarily a ladder between each level of the system. Exactly. Kind of like a tree house without staircases between the floors. Yes, exactly. And so that's why it's applauded when somebody is like, well, I was an immigrant in America and now I own my own restaurant. Yeah. It's like, yes, that should be applauded because what that person had to do to get there, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, totally. That's, that's, that's really well said. You know, we're, we're coming up on an election here in America, and it's, it's always struck me as odd that farming and agriculture policy rarely get discussed in political debates in this country, or even on the news, for that matter, mm -hmm. despite the fact that they shape how our entire country consumes food and increasingly how our country consumes health care, right? Because mm -hmm. we are, as a country, dealing with really intense dietary diseases, you know, things like type 2 diabetes and obesity and heart disease. And right now, COVID-19 on top of that, which tends to prey on people that have pre-existing conditions, a lot of which are tied to how we eat. So I guess yes. what, I'm, what I'm curious to hear from you is, you know, what changes do you, would you like to see in terms of the U.S. food system on a kind of a macro level? Um, I think, like, if I was to talk about New York City, I think it's about prioritizing food. There are cities like Atlanta where 
urban gardening is prioritized. It is yeah. something that is very important to the city of Atlanta. And not only is the city of Atlanta prioritizing it, but they're, they're prioritizing black people doing it. So if you go to Atlanta, you see a lot of black people in leadership positions because they're tied to urban ag. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot that America can learn from Atlanta in terms of prioritizing food sovereignty for each town and each city through having some level of budget for it. Yeah. Um, when it comes to New York City, I think that can happen through prioritizing vacant land to to New York City's food sovereignty um, instead of, you know, giving it to more commercial space. I think instead of it, either it's going to become housing or it's going to become something for food sovereignty. Yeah. And it could look, that can look however it needs to look. If that's hydroponics, if that's aquaponics, then so be it. But I think less commercial space and more spaces for people to live and for people to grow food for each other yeah. is ideal. Yeah. I also think, as we've seen a gazillion times on every internet interface, is like, yes, kids need to have access to agricultural or food growing education. Yeah. I, I don't think, I think that's happening a lot right now in New York city. And I think it's happening a lot in the major cities, but that needs to be translated to even the smallest towns yeah. um, in America. Um, and especially in the towns where, you know, it's like corn city or grain city, they need to even learn more about diversity like soil diversity and all of that so they can understand how their parents or their family are impacting the world through through growing monsanto seeds or you know growing grain and having to send it to some part of africa and how that's impacting climate change hmm. so i definitely prioritize that i think on a bigger level the government should create a regenerative subsidized farming plan. I think if they can subsidize grain and they can subsidize corn, they can subsidize farming that is regenerative. And for whatever reason, they, they choose not to do that. There's a gazillion conspiracy theories that can talk about why they choose not to do that. But the point is, is if they were rooted in wanting to do better for America and wanted to do better for the health of Americans, they would prioritize subsidizing regenerative farming. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you brought up an interesting point, which is uh, just like to our earlier discussion, uh, sometimes it's just an uphill battle to even start something like a community garden. Like, you know, we had, yes. Ron, we had Ron Finley on the podcast, uh, you know, really famous urban gardener out of South LA. Mm -hmm. And he was saying in his community, when he first started, they, that he got pushback from the city for just trying to put a garden in like a, in, um, you know, a park parklet thing, basically like a sidewalk yes. space. It was totally unused. Like the city, he got into a legal fight with the city of LA over that, I think on multiple occasions, right? So yes. it just strikes me like a basic change is like, we shouldn't push back on people who want to transform unused space into gardens, especially if it's, you know, public space, like a, a median strip or, you know, something along the side of a uh, a sidewalk there. That's just such low hanging fruit. Like it, it frustrates me personally that that's not just unanimously accepted is like, what, why not make this space beautiful and capable of feeding people and something the community actually cares about? Cause nobody cares about just like a paved median, but if that has sunflowers on it or, you know, an apple tree or uh, some kale, like you might actually start to look at it differently and start to look at your own neighborhood uh, differently. Absolutely. And that, that's, that goes back to, you know, like decolonizing land ownership that goes into why is why is there an interface of having to ask permission to do what needs to be done? Mm. And COVID really brought that to the forefront for New York City. It's like yeah. I've challenged, I've been challenging Central Park to say why isn't why is there all of this space in Central Park, and it's not being used to grow food. But we were able to see with COVID what happens when food is not being imported or when there is not enough workers to produce enough food for New York City. So really it's about local governments saying we need to prioritize having less food imported and more food coming from here, being produced from each other here. But when profitability and aesthetics are prioritized over that, that's how we get to the great lawn in Central Park rather than 
the great farm in Central Park. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, it sounds like food food sovereignty is is really at the center of what you're advocating for here. I mean, I'm curious, you kind of beat me to my last question, which is how has COVID shaped your vision of farming and our connection to nature in this country? Like, what are you thinking about these days? Um, I'm honestly always thinking about land ownership because I, I think I need autonomy and that's what COVID has taught me. The fact that I was able to not only get big stores to back me, like the greenhouse mega store to say, Hey, we'll, we'll give you greenhouses. We'll give you tools. We'll give you soil to do whatever you want to do. And then have, you know, grants given to me without me having to go through an application process. So to have the tools and the money and the people ready to farm, but we still have to ask permission to utilize land spaces. I realized immediately that autonomy is, is my main goal. I need to not ever have to ask permission to do what needs to be done to feed people. Mm. Um, and so essentially mutual aid is what's going to help me survive. And I mean that fully, like, Mutual aid is just people cheering me on and being like, we see you, we hear you, we're still with you. Or mutual aid, like, what do you need? I'm going to seek other people for resources to get it to you. Or like, I have $5 here, here's this $5 for you. That's what's going to keep me going because I'm so rooted on whatever land mass that I have. It's for everyone who is donating it's for everyone who feels connected to me or that land in some type of way. So if that's actually somebody who's like, I've been following you on Instagram for five years, cool. Or if that's somebody that's like, well, the land that you decided to buy is my indigenous people's land, then it's like, well, this is our land. So I think autonomy, first and foremost, is where COVID has positioned me. Mm. Awesome. Really powerful stuff. I'd love to get to the speed round here. Just some closer questions, round it out, get to know you a little bit better. The first one is, is there anything you'd encourage the folks listening to follow up with or explore in more depth on their own time? Uh, I would say, look at, like I said in the beginning, look at the Pickford cases. Literally just get on Google, type in the Pickford cases. It will tell you all you need to know about racism, land access, USDA in America. Yep. Amazing. Uh, and what's a positive change you made in your life in the past year that you think folks should try? Um, I've been very honest with myself this year. You know, I've been very honest by saying I have no work-life balance. And through saying that, being transparent with myself and my toxicities just within myself, mm. I've been able to figure out ways how to work, work on myself while having no balance. That makes sense. Totally. Uh, definitely, definitely makes sense. If you're cooking for somebody and you want to make them feel loved, what are you going to make for them? Oh, wow. Probably some type of pie. Probably like awesome. a, a apple pie. Yeah. Mm. Apple pie is my favorite type of pie. It's like, since I was a little kid, I would always ask for apple pie. My mom used to give me apple pie for my birthday. I asked for a pie instead of a cake. It's like, it's no, totally, so totally up my good. alley. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's the most reliable pie too. Like it's really hard to find a bad apple pie. Other pies you can really easily mess up like gloopy blueberry pie where you can just tell like those blueberries yeah. are harvested years ago. Like, <laughs> Yeah. But yeah. also apple pie, it's like, it's so resourceful. It's like there's so many bad apples mm. and you can still use them. Yeah. And the really tart ones that are kind of hard to eat are actually best for pies. I don't know. Exactly. Same, same page here. <laughs> Team apple pie. Um, what ingredient could you not live without? Ingredient. Oh my gosh. Oh man. Garlic. Yeah. <laughs> garlic. Yeah. It's fine. These questions I feel like go in phases because like this garlic trend, I mean, I guess it's always been there, but I feel like every guest I've asked about has said garlic recently. It's something's in the oh my air. Gosh. Yeah. Amazing. And uh, what's your least favorite thing to waste? Least favorite thing to waste, man, time. <laughs> no, let me stop. Um, least <laughs> the favorite herb, thing the to herb or the, uh, the, uh, the time passing? <laughs> the time passing, that's what I meant. But honestly, I really don't like to waste uh, like milk. Hmm. Yeah. I think that has something to do with my childhood and like drinking whole milk and how fast it curdles. But if I waste milk, I feel, I feel like I really did it. It's not yeah. something that can easily be composted. And like when it goes bad, it's just a terrible situation. Yeah. And what is your go-to karaoke song? 
Whoa. I've actually never done karaoke. But if I was to do karaoke, I would absolutely do a Biggie Small song. Some okay. some Biggie Small song. Anyone in particular come to mind? No. I'd probably do a whole album if I could. <laughs> Amazing. I'm uh, I'm really partial to Hypnotize. I think that one just has like the coolest beat. I think you're right. I think that's also like the biggest Biggie Small song. So everybody would be with it. Energy yeah, wise. I just feel like you, the whole room, even if they weren't singing, everyone would just be kind of bobbing. You know, it's one of those songs that's hard to just not bob your head to. It's like, oh, it's just, true. Yeah, no, that's, that's a that's a good one. Amazing. Yeah, Biggie Biggie karaoke is definitely a good time. Um, okay, what is uh, sorry? Who is somebody you admire tremendously, and what do you admire about them? Oh, Vazana Shiva. Okay. Oh, she between... yeah, the the soil lady, right? She's like really popularized the the soil debate. She's the soil and seed lady. She's set, she is the most eloquent, non-black, thugged out, boss-ass bitch woman I've ever met in my life. <laughs> um, and I've never met her, but like every time I watch her, it's like the eloquence and the subtleties in her voice that really help you catch her on. But aside from her, I would say Asada Shakur, who is somebody I hold very near and dear. Like I see Asada Shakur as like my auntie that I never met. And she's also very powerful because she took a lot of pride in being disrupting. Like she, she never felt like it was problematic to say I'm here to disrupt yeah. a lot of things that are in place. And I really struggle with shame around that. Hmm. Amazing. I definitely have links to both of those folks in the show notes. Uh, how, how do you spell her name? Asada, A-S-S-A-T-A, Asada. And then Shakur is S-H-A-K-U-R. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you for that. And uh, finally here, what are you grateful for this week? What am I grateful for? Um, I'm grateful that it is July, honestly. Um, I'm looking forward to this winter. So the closer that we get to it, the closer I get to restoration and possibly a vacation. So I'm grateful to be finally at peak season, harvesting tomatoes and knowing that fall, hopefully, because we're in climate change realm, but knowing that fall is not too far away. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to have something to look forward to, especially in 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm like, I'm ready to shut down and quarantine again, Mm -hmm. if need be. Yeah. Surely. Well, Amber Tamp, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a lovely conversation. Where can folks learn more about you and the work that you do? Yeah, um, I think the best way to really get in contact with me is to send me a message on Instagram because I pretty much live on Instagram. Um, But if you want to know about like frequently asked questions or all of that, ambertam.com, at ambertam uh, on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all of the things. A-M-B-E-R-T-A-M-M. Amazing. And we'll have links to everything we talked about today, all of these different folks you should check out, some different books to read, things to follow up with. We'll have those all on our website. That's thewholecarrot.com where all of our imperfect content lives, including this episode and all of our podcast episodes. So definitely give that a get check that out when you have a chance. Uh, Amber Tam, thank you so much. This has been a delight. Thank you. 